So I want to talk about worship today, and I thought that song was so perfect because what Nebuchadnezzar does is he spends all this money, he gets this great band together, and he erects this statue made out of gold, all this gold. And then he has, everybody's got to bow down, so it's all this conformity. You know that there's people that sit around rooms all week long thinking about how they can get you to worship the product they're selling or to get you to worship the idea that they're selling. And they have billions of dollars, just like Nebuchadnezzar, at their disposal trying to conform us, trying to force us down to worshiping whatever they are selling us. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in in the midst of all of that pressure to conform, Thousands of people, nose to the ground, bowing down to this statue. They're standing out like a sore thumb, standing there, saying, we will not be conformed. We will worship God because God says we should worship him and him alone. And so it's a huge uprising. This is like a rebellion. They're standing against it. And we have to do that. In the world that we live in, we have to do that from time to time. Today, I really want to talk about worship. I want to stop before I start because Derek's dad's here. Right back there, sitting. I could, you want to stand up and say hello? So let me tell you why I haven't do that. Because some, some deranged person years ago made the mistake of thinking that Derek was my son. And, and then I, there's, there's a whole crew of people running around Arlington that think for some reason Derek is legitimately my son. So Mr. 80, that makes you grand, actually great-grandfather now. This is my father, Derek's grandfather, his great-grandfather. So, and we go, Derek loves this. We go out to eat, and a waiter, waitress comes, and he says to me, he says, Dad, uh, you know, Dad, to the waiter, waitress, Dad's going to take care of this bill, so if you just give the, the bill to Dad, he's just going to handle that. Anyway, I was going to say, I hope I don't look that old, but you're here today, so I can't say that. So, you look great. Great. Okay. All right, let's, uh, so let's get off that. Let's talk about worship. Uh, here we go. So what we have here is these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come off cool as a cucumber, living purpose, meaning, man, they got it. And Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, the richest man in the world, comes off looking really miserable and looking quite foolish, even though he's incredibly smart in this story. And my question is why? Why are these guys over here, these three guys getting ready to be pitched into this furnace? Why are they so cool? Why are they so calm? Why are they so collective? And why is this guy over here who's controlling everything coming unglued? What is the difference? And I want to suggest you the difference between the two is worship. Whatever you worship is going to direct your life. It's so important. And we're going to define what it means to worship in just a moment. Now, let's, take a, let's back up a little bit to get a running head start into Daniel chapter 3. And let's back this little bit ourselves into Daniel chapter 2, the end of it. So in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he calls all the you know, people who interpret dreams together. He says, look, not only I want you to interpret the dream, but you've got to tell me what I dreamed. And then you've got to interpret it. And they said, there's no way we can do that. And so he said, that's fine. I'm going to dismember you. You're going to become five parts instead of one, and then I'm going to turn your homes into dunghills. So Daniel, they come to arrest him to do this, and he's wait, give me a time. And so he prays about it. God reveals it to him, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, what you dreamed as you slept on your bed is you saw this big, huge statue, this statue that was made out of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And each one of those four parts represents four world superpowers. And then there was a fifth that came along, and it was cut out of a mountain. It wasn't, it wasn't a man-made kingdom. 
It was cut out of a mountain, and it was hurdled, a rock that was hurdled, and it totally destroyed the statue. Like, poof, crushed it to the ground. It's gone. It ends in disaster. It's over. Nebuchadnezzar is so thrilled by that that Daniel could actually do this. He says this. I put it on your outline. Daniel 2.40 says this. The king says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and he is the revealer of mysteries. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand how worship connects to our everyday life. Speak to us, please, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, now we read with that understanding, with that context of the end of Daniel chapter 2. Here is how Daniel chapter 3 begins. Remember, the statue is going to be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and so Nebuchadnezzar does this. Daniel 3, 1. Then King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. He said, you know what? If I'm the head of gold... I might as well make the whole thing gold, right? Forget all those other parts. Let's make the whole thing gold. He makes it 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Do you know that archaeologists have found a very large base outside of the city of Babylon, a very large platform that would be strong enough? Because this is like a nine-story building that he's erecting outside of Babylon, putting up a nine-story building. So it's got to have a very solid foundation. They found a solid foundation. Can you believe that? Just like the story here tells us. All right. So 90 feet high and nine feet wide. He sets it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summons and it lists all these people to come and to bow down to this image. What is so weird about that, everybody? Here's what's so weird about that. He was just told that the statue ends in disaster. So he says, well, let's make a statue. That's like saying, you know what? I'm running towards a dead end. Is there any way I can speed up? Can you supersize a disaster for me? He's doing the exact opposite that what he should be. He's confused. And what I want to suggest to you today is he's confused because he's worshiping the wrong thing. His worship has guided his life in the wrong direction. Whereas Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they are worshiping, which is God, is directing their lives in the right direction. Well... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we're not going to bow down. Now, can you imagine that scene, everybody? They're out there on this plane, this big, wide open plane. Thousands of people. He called all the leaders. He gets the best orchestra he can find. Gets all the leaders because he's consolidating his whole kingdom. He's taken over all these other nations. Gets all these thousands and thousands of people together. And every single person out there has their nose to the ground bowed down. And you've got three guys standing there. What did that look like? I mean, were they just... Were they just Tapping their foot to the music, like, it's pretty good, but we're not bowing down. Were they smoking a cigarette? I mean, what were they doing standing there? And he's got some people that were spying, Nebuchadnezzar does. He says, you've got three guys, Shadrach, Meshach. They refuse to bow down. They go to the king and says, you know what? Those three guys that you brought in from Jerusalem, they're not bowing down. They don't care what you say. They're disrespecting what you say, and they're not going to bow down. Bring them here. Listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, look, I think you misunderstood the command. I'm going to go over it one more time, and then we're going to give you a private worship ceremony. Like, we're all going to stand around and watch you three bow your nose to the ground. Because if you don't, I'm throwing you in this furnace right over here. And you know what they say back? They say, oh, king, we don't even need to defend ourselves to you on this front. Our God is able to save us from the situation. Now, here it comes. But 
Even if he does not, we are still not bowing down. That's why this story is one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire furnace. We will not be conformed or controlled or degraded by you. We're going to worship God. We're going to worship God alone. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, is just he just comes completely unglued at this point. The word image, the word image shows up 12 times in this one chapter alone. And here at this point, it says that his, his attitude changed. And the actual word is his image change, like his face. You ever seen somebody so mad and angry about something that their look on their face becomes completely distorted? Has anybody ever seen that? Somebody happen? A couple of you have seen that. I've seen that happen a few times in my life, too. Uh, we won't tell you who that is, but anyway. Uh, I've seen that happen. Just, oh, just lose it. Just so distorted. He's upset. And these guys are cool as a cucumber over here. They're like... We're, you know, we're fine. He's the most powerful man on the face of the earth is coming unglued. And in front of all of his officials, in front of all this pomp and ceremony where he has to look like he has it together because he's consolidating his power, the big moment. And in front of all of that, he loses his image. He wanted to come across as a guy who had it completely under control and as somebody everybody should follow. This guy's a smart guy. When Alexander the Great rolled into Babylon, he said, this city is phenomenal. King Nebuchadnezzar built that city. That city had air-conditioned gardens. They figured out 2,500 years ago how to air-condition, and he did it. And Nebuchadnezzar was the mastermind behind all this. We'll see that next week when he looks over the city and says, this is the city that I have built. This is a very smart guy. He's really into image, and he's completely losing it. And so when they say, we're not going to bow down, you know what Neb does? He says, well, that's it. I've had it. He totally loses his... Heat that furnace seven times hotter. I want to hurt these guys as much as possible. Is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard in your life? Why would you heat something hotter if you want to hurt somebody really bad? Why don't you say to everybody, cool that furnace down. We want to slow roast these boys. Like, I want to hear them inside of there slow roasting, just screaming in agony. But you know what? When we're worshiping the wrong thing, we head in the wrong direction. When we're worshiping the wrong thing, we head in the wrong direction. This is why worship is so very, very critical. I just want to clarify a few things, if I can, about worship. This is important. All right, here we go. What worship is not? What is it not? Worship is not music. Now, you can worship the music. I'm not saying that. But worship in and of itself is not defined as music. We just sang, and I hope you enjoyed it. But that in and of itself is not worship. I hope you worshiped, but it's not worship can worship music, but it's not. Worship is not music. Worship is not a church service. Where are you going to? I'm going to worship service. Get ready to walk into worship service. Worship is not a church service, and worship is not a feeling. Sometimes we might see somebody or we watch on TV, and somebody's really, you know, getting into it and jumping up and down and very exciting. We say, wow, man, they're really worshiping God. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're just having a strong feeling. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah says to the people, he says, hey, everybody, you're honoring God with your lips and you're going to church. But, here comes the but, your hearts are far from God. Your hearts are far from God. In other words, they were singing. They were having the feeling. They were attending a church service. But the character, their hearts were not being changed. Their behaviors, their thinking, their, who they were on the inside was not because they were not engaging in genuine worship. When we actually engage in genuine worship, what we're going to talk about in just a second, it transforms our character. It changes the person that we are. It changes our whole life. 
So what is worship? Please fill this out. Worship is value. Worship is worth. The word, the definition of the word itself, worship. Not singing. It's not what you're doing right here necessarily. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. What worship simply is, is value. What do you value the most? Whatever you value the most is what you worship the most. Now, that could be money. That could be success. That could be good health. That could be family. That could be marriage. It could be a lot of different things. And we're all worshipers. Atheists, great worshipers. Agnostics, fantastic worshipers. Religious people, fantastic worshipers. We're all worshiping something. The question is not, are you a worshiper? See, because when we say, well, it's music or it's going to church, then we just totally mess up what worship is. When you understand that worship is nothing but value, now, okay, now I get it. So what do you value the most? What do I value the most? What does everybody on this planet, everybody has something that they value the most at some point. Now, it changes and go up and down, but at some point, right now in your life, there's something that you value the most. And when you mess with whatever you value the most, it messes your life up. If everything is okay with what you value the most, you are okay. As long as what you value the most is okay. I want to try to make that point. I want to say one other thing first. Listen. There is no emphasis in Daniel chapter 3 on prayer. Now, I'm sure those boys are praying. By the time that they picked them up and said, "Woo!" I'm sure they said, oh, Lord. I'm sure there was a prayer somewhere. But we just don't hear about it. But what we do hear about is worship. Peace. Purpose. Our world's not being rocked in very intense situations. So, oh, God, give me peace. That helps. Not discouraging anybody to pray. Want you to pray. Want you to pray. I'm just suggesting to you that our peace in this world, in our world not being rocked by the situations that all of us go through, do not necessarily, first and foremost, come from our prayer life. They come from our worship life. They come from what we value the most. Because when what we value the most is an intact and it's okay, we, my friends, are intact and okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the biblical example of that in a crystal clear way. I want to try to give you a couple examples to see if this makes sense to you, all right? If I value my health more than anything else, if my health is the number one thing to me in my life, and I go to the doctor and I get a bad medical report, what happens to me? I mean, my health is, whoa, way up there. That's the most important thing in my life. And I get a bad medical report. What does it do? It rocks my world. If I value romance, you know, when I was single, I did a lot of dating. Uh, it's not true, but, uh, let's say I did theoretically did a lot of dating and you know, every time a girl broke up with me, right? What would happen to my life? I'm right in the tank because I value that the most. If I value, you know, work the most success, the most, and I don't get a promotion, then when whatever I value the most is messed with, whatever I value the most is messed with, then I am not okay. But when everything is okay with whatever I value the most, I'm okay. So here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in a terrible spot. <laughs> they are facing a blazing furnace. Things are not looking good. And they're just rock solid. Their world's not being rocked. They're rocking the world. You know why? Because what they value the most is God, and God is okay. God is okay. God doesn't have, God's all right. He's not being rocked. He's solid. He's there. He's sure. He's true. He's all these things. God is doing okay. And because I value God the most and God's doing okay, I'm okay. 
If God's not doing okay, I'm not, I'm not okay. That's how important that that is. All right. Our peace and our purpose come from worship. Our peace and our purpose come from worship. If you are just sick and tired, like I have been many times in my life and will still be in the future, if you're just sick and tired of your world getting rocked constantly, Something happens, and man, it just, boom, man, it just rocks you. You're devastated. You're depressed. And you're tired of this up and down life. If you're tired of struggling with behaviors, like, I just can't get over this thing. I can't get over that. I can't. If you're just sick and tired of it, I just want to really, really encourage you to hear what the Bible has to say about the importance of worship. If God will become number one in your life, if you will value God, if you will worship God above and beyond all other things, your world being rocked is going to take a serious slowdown. Peace and purpose is going to begin to just invade your life because God is okay. He is not changing. Now, I want to try to illustrate this real quick of it two ways. I'm going to need two volunteers. How about you two strapping young men? Can you all help me out real here? Right? Just quick. How about a hand? Okay. You stand right there. Ryan, you come over this way. All right. We got two different guys here. All right, everybody. Here's the thing. We're going to call, we're going to call this, this is person number one. And this is person number this is Ryan. This is Dave. All right. Now, both of them have a job. They're both going to have this job, everybody. And on this job, they work in a very hot environment. They're like down on the equator working. And it's at least 100 degrees every single day. And these guys' job is to sit out in 100 degrees with 100% humidity every single day and to dig a ditch every day. Six days a week, 12 hours a day. These two guys, are they happy about it? They're digging a ditch. 12 hours a day, six days a week, and they got a foreman. A foreman who is screaming, upset. Anybody ever had a foreman or a boss? Just Has anybody had a couple hands? Oh, man, when I work for UPS, oh, man. I I don't know where they train these guys, but they would just rip us. It was awesome. When it was happening to somebody else, it was so great. But uh, they would just just have. So this, this foreman on this job digging a ditch, digging a ditch for 12 hours a day, six days a week. All right, that's what they're doing. All right, we got it? Here's the snare. All right. Now, we go to this guy. He's getting ready to start his work. We say, at the end of a year, Ryan, we are going to pay you $10,000 for a year of your service, breaking your back. We're going to pay you $10,000. Is he excited? When you show up to work every day, right? So let's start digging the ditch. You show up to work every day. Are you happy? Are you happy? You think of foreman's cussing at you, yelling, you're no good, you're worthless, right? So he's screaming at you. Is he happy? He's miserable. And the more and more he works, the more. So every day he comes to work, he gets more and more and more miserable. He's disgusted. Now, right beside of him is this young man over here. Look at him. Okay? He's working every day. He's doing the same job. But instead of us saying at the end of a year, we're going to give you $10,000, you know what we're going to say to this man over day? Say, at the end of a year, we're going to give you $100 million. How do you feel? Does it bother you to dig the ditch? Does it bother you? Every day you come to work, are you happier? And when the foreman, when the foreman says all kinds of nasty things about you, does it bother you? It doesn't bother you at all. Why? He could care less. Talk about my mama. Talk about anything you want. I could care less what you talk about. You're giving me $100 million. I'm happy. Well, why is he happy? Because this man worships money, right? He (laughs) worships money. Just like you. 
just like me. And when everything is okay with whatever you value the most or whatever you value a lot, you, my friends, are okay. Every single one of us. Give us, oh, you guys should sit down. Oh, you did a great job. When everything is okay with whatever we value the most, we are okay. And with whatever you value the most, if it's great, like $100 million, we're like, great. Bring it on. I'll endure a year. You can yell and scream at me anything you want. I'll work through 100 degrees. I'll work through 120 degrees. I don't care. doesn't matter because when everything is okay, with what I value the most, I am okay. Now, let's talk about worship. Oh, I do need to say one more thing before we get into the four points of worship. The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are all about character change, aren't they? The Ten Commandments are all about behavioral transformation. You have a problem with lying. You have a problem with your character. You have a problem with lust. You have a problem with greed. You have a problem with gossip, right? Honor other people. You have a problem with any of these behavioral things, these character things in your life, and you struggle with them. Where are you going to get transformation? Where does the Ten Commandments start with and where does it end? Where does it start and where does it lead to you? What proceeds? How does character transformation, what does it proceed from? Commandment number one is what? Anybody from Sunday school class, maybe a million years ago? Commandment number one is what? Love the Lord you got. Commandment number two? Almost. <laughs> Almost. Commandment number Exodus chapter 20. Love God first. Number two, do not bow down to any other idols. Worship God and worship God alone. And from what proceeds from that is character transfer. That's how important worship is. Now, just four quick points, everybody, on how we can improve our worship. So how can, we, how can we get to this place in life, right? Again, we have this idea. People who really worship God are the people who come into church. Woo, God, love you, Jesus, right? Oh, man, they're worshipers. Or people who go to church every Sunday, they're worshipers. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Music is not worship. Church is not worship. Isaiah tells us that. What is worship? Worship is value. Worship is do I value God? So what helps us value God more? Four quick, very practical points. The first one is this. Worship needs community. In order to worship needs community, if you'll fill that in, worship needs community. To improve our worship, we need to get with a group of people who value God. In order to improve our worship, we must get ourselves around a group of people who value God. Are you on a regular basis around a group of people who also values God? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, this is here for a reason. They had their little group. Jesus had his group of 12 disciples valuing God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, these guys value God. And that rubs off. When you're around other people who value something as well, what it does is increases your value of that something as well. All right, so if it's God, then it goes up. The gold standard in the Bible of worship is Psalm 95. Been that way for hundreds of years. It's the gold standard. So when we say, where do we want to go to to learn about worship? We go to Psalm 95. It's been the case for hundreds of years. I want to give you a couple excerpts. Psalm 95 says this. Come, let us. If you got a little pen and you're following that outline, you might want to circle the let us. I underlined it for you. Come, let us. Let us do what? Sing for joy of the Lord. Let us shout 
aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God. What, what, does anything stand out to you about that? Is anything? It's always in the plural, isn't it? This is always in the plural. Do you have a group of people that you hang out with on a regular basis? When I was about 12, 13 years old, I had heard of the sport of skateboarding. I did not own a skateboard. I was not interested in skateboarding. I could care less about skateboarding. And all of a sudden in my life, I got around a group of people who were crazy about skateboarding. And overnight, within a week, I couldn't talk about anything else but skateboarding. Mom, Dad, you've got to get me a skateboard. If you don't get me one, I'm going to the store and stealing it. Whatever has to happen, I have to have a skateboard. A week ago, I could care less. But now I'm around a group of people who highly highly value some of you you get around a group of people and you've heard about a tv show you've never watched that tv show before and all of a sudden you're around maybe you've got a new place of work or new friends or whatever and they're crazy about whatever tv show it is the next thing you know you're rearranging your entire schedule i gotta say oh no you know you're with somebody i gotta go i gotta go because you know the show's coming on right so i hear some of you laughing because this is hitting the point right so when you get around somebody who also other people who have that, that rubs off on you and you value it as well and that's why we need to be with people now this has limits let's be realistic it has limits it's not like i could go and hang out with a group of people who love the dallas cowboys and somehow that's going to rub off on me this has limits right god gets involved there too you got you know right satan's team god's team that whole thing right there so this had limits so i want us to be practical about that you need to be around a group of people on a regular basis who value God. This is a good start, being right here. Jesus hung out with large crowds of people, the feeding of the 5,000. He hung out with his 12 people. And to have both who value God is actually very, very helpful in improving your worship. Because what happens when your worship improves? Your world stops being rocked. Because God is okay. Number two, worship needs truth. So these boys said to Nebuchadnezzar, they said, Neb. We're not bowing down. I don't care about that furnace over there. Where did they get that idea? I and mean, why isn't it okay to bow down? I mean, come on. Your life is on the line. What's the big deal? Bow down to the idol. I mean, how long does it take? Put your nose to the ground. Get it over with. You're making a big scene. Where did they get this idea that it is not okay to bow down to this idol? They got the idea from the Bible. The Bible says it. Exodus 20, don't bow down. The Bible prophesies all this stuff over and over that you should. And they're... they're, they're um, Faith in the Bible had only increased in recent days because a thousand years back from this point right here, Moses said, you're going to go back into captivity. And a hundred years before these boys were born, Isaiah had said, you who live in the royal house of Jerusalem are going to go into captivity to Babylon. And these boys knew that. They knew all these prophecies were coming to pass. They said, we can trust the Bible. And the Bible says we should not bow down. Now, the same problem that was going on in Babylon is the same thing that we deal with here in America today, isn't it? What they did in Babylon was this. They said, well, this God over here, we like this God over here. We're going to take a few pieces of this God over here, kind of make things up. But we take this as good. It's almost like creating a dish, like you're making a meal. You know, to take a little bit of spice and a little bit of spice here. And so we like that little this piece of God over here and this piece of God and this piece of God, and we'll mix it all together. And sometimes we do that when it comes to God. You know, I like this aspect about Jesus. 
I like what he has to say about love and forgiveness. I can't stand the stuff he says about money, but I enjoy the things that he says about love and forgiveness. I don't like some of the things he maybe says about morality and things like that. I don't like some of the things he says about praying for my neighbors and think, I mean, praying for my enemies. Stuff. But there are some things that I really, really like about what Jesus Christ says. And so what we do is we create our own version of God. Now, the reality is, we know this from extensive studies, that it's actually Bible study that's rooted in the truth, not our opinions about God, that causes us to grow spiritually, and it brings worship to a whole new level. It's rooted in the truth, not your version, not my version of what I think God should be. I've got all kinds of ideas of what I think God should be, but is it rooted in the truth? Rooted in the truth. Look what it says. Uh... Romans 125, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator. Worship has to be rooted in the truth. That is why, my friends, Bible studies where small groups of people get together and they just do a lot of talking about their opinions, which is fun. It's awesome if you want to have a social time. If you come together and do that, they really don't move your meter one ounce when it comes to spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth is directly tied to the Bible, rooted in the Bible, digging in, lots of page turning. What does it say here? That's, what's, that's where worship comes from. All right, third thing is this. Worship needs unconditional trust. See what they say? Say, hey, Neb, God can rescue us, but we want you to know this. Even if he does not rescue us, we're still not bowing down. Now, that's not our way of doing things. Because if I worship money, I worship money because I want to get more money. I worship success or my job because I want to get a promotion. So here's the idea. I worship and value something because it gives me something. It's going to give me that something. Whose philosophy is that? That's actually the devil's philosophy. We find in Matthew, uh, where are we? Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus Christ is being tempted, check this out, when he's being tempted, he goes through three temptations. The third and final temptation by the devil is in Matthew chapter 4. I'll just read it. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. In other words, he's saying, you worship me, I'm going to give you something back. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're going to worship God we, we have no strings attached to what we're going to get back. No strings attached whatsoever. So worship needs to be unconditional. You know, God, I'm going to go to church today, go into the worship service today, and then I want you to give me X, Y, and Z. I want you to make this situation right. And if this situation doesn't turn out right with me somehow, shape, or form, then I'm not going to church next week. Right? Worship needs to be unconditional trust. I've always loved that story of the two guys that were shipwrecked out in the middle of the ocean. And they go on days and days and days, no food, no water. They're getting desperate. The one guy says to the other, you know what, eventually I think I'm going to have to tell God if he'll just get me off this ship, if he'll just get me off this little dinghy out in the middle of the ocean, I will commit the rest of my life to him. I'm going to do it if he'll just get me off. So finally one day he couldn't take it anymore. They're five days into it. He gets down on his knees in the middle of that little dinghy. Oh, God! And all of a sudden, his buddy says, Stop! I think I see land. Don't make that bad mistake. Don't tell God you're going to give everything. The idea is we are so wired this way. It is so natural. 
I worship something because that something I worship gives something back. The worship must, must be unconditional trust. No strings attached. Final point is this. Worship needs divine intervention. Divine. So they get tossed into the furnace. And they're inside this furnace. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar stands up. He says, whoa, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there? I see four. And the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. Now, look, some people, we have all kinds of speculation who in the world that was inside there. People think that's a Christophany, which means that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the fire with them. Maybe. Maybe. Could be. I think it's a pretty good argument. But we don't know. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know anything. He's not been hanging out with God. Didn't know what God, didn't know what Jesus looks like. He didn't know anything, right? He just says, there's been divine intervention here. Those boys aren't dead. Then all the soldiers that threw them in the furnace, they're all laying here dead. They've been burned up. And these guys are in there walking around. And there's a fourth person in there. What were they talking about inside? That This is like taking a fireside chat to an all-new level, right? It's like taking it right inside the fire. What were they talking about? Do you know that Isaiah had said 100 years before this incident happened, Isaiah prophesied, he said, there will come a time when you will walk through fire and you will not be burned. Maybe they were discussing having a theological discussion about what Isaiah had said. I don't know, but I know this, is there was divine intervention here. There was a greater understanding of the value of God. I believe they exited the fire, and their worship, their value of God was going to be like, oh my gosh, God is even more valuable. God is even more worthy, even more worthy than what we could ever imagine. Isaiah himself, everybody, he was a pretty good guy. He lived a pretty good, righteous life. And one day, his eyes opened up, and he saw God for who God really was. And he said, oh, my goodness, I am completely undone. God is more worthy, more valuable, and more holy than I ever could have imagined. My point here is this, everybody. You can get your community, and you need to get your community. You all need to get community to worship, and it will improve our worship. You can, you can have your unconditional trust, and we need that. You can be rooted in truth, but there's one little last piece that must come into place, and that is this. Every single one of us need help from God. We need help from God to see exactly how valuable and how worthy God is because we can't see it on our own. There aren't people who just walk around this world that somehow God is equipped with different eyeballs than you and I have that somehow they can just see the worth of Almighty God. What I'm suggesting to you is that we need divine intervention from God. We need to say, God, I want to improve my worth of you, my value of you, and I need you to step in and help me out with that. I need you to open my eyes. Now, I want to give you a story to, to maybe make sense of that. Matthew 13 says this. Jesus Christ is talking. He says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a treasure, and it's hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then with joy, he went out. He sells everything he has. No other, so, so God... He's so valuable, is what he's saying here, that this man with joy goes out and sells every last ounce of what he has so he can get his hands on the value of God. Does that make sense? This is what happens here. It would be like you. Maybe in, in your family there's a piece of jewelry or something, hypothetically, right, you've had in your family, and it's just passed down, passed down. It's hundreds of years old. You didn't know where it come from. You don't know the story anymore. You've thought about just throwing it away. You've thought about giving it to goodwill over and over and over again because it's worthless. It's just taking up room. And then one day you decide, you know what, just on a whim, I'm going to go down to the jeweler and see if the jeweler has anything to say about this piece of jewelry. And he puts a little thing in his eye. I don't know what that thing's called, but it's in his eye. He looks at that thing, and all of a sudden he goes, oh! 
oh my gosh, this is an ancient, this thing is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Has your life just changed? Has your life just changed? If the answer would be yes, your life has just changed. You live in a little two-bedroom condo here in Washington, D.C., right? And now all of a sudden your life is completely transformed. Anybody remember the Beverly Hillbillies? Huh? Right? Old Jed. Old Jed is walking around. Where does he live? Kentucky, Tennessee, or something like that? He's got that dog, and he's got his shotgun. He's got the clothes on his back. He's, he's as poor as poor can be, right? And then one day he's out shooting. And what does he hit? Anybody? I'd sing the song, but I can't remember all the words. I, gold, Texas tea. All of a sudden, man, Jed, move away from here. You need to go to Beverly Hills in the cement pond out there. Some of you know the show. So oh, his life completely transforms. He has a hidden treasure. He didn't know it. That land is in his family for hundreds. I don't know all this for a fact. I'm speculating. Land's been in his family for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's sitting on a fortune. He doesn't know it. What I want to suggest today is every single one of us, every single one of us in this room is sitting on a fortune right now. We're sitting on a fortune. And we might not ever know it in our entire lives, the fortune that we're sitting on. And that fortune is the value of God, the worth of God that is available to every single one of us in our lives. If you're sick and tired of your world being rocked by finances and by health and by romance and jobs and all this stuff and traffic, all the frustration, if you're tired of it being rocked, think about what you worship the most. Because when it is God, and God is clearly way up here that you value God more than anything else, God is okay. And when God is okay, and he'll always be okay, you my friends, will always be okay. We're going to have communion. So those who are helping out with communion, if you could come up. I want to explain communion just really brief. I'm almost done. And the band's going to come up. We're going to play. The communion is open to everybody. Uh, you'll come up and you'll, you'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the cup. And then you'll step aside or go back to your seat or whatever. And, and you'll consume, consume that. Very serious what Jesus Christ has done for us. Very serious in communion. And it's a time, the Bible says, that we should seriously consider, you know, where am I in my relationship with God? What, you know, what do I need to do? So communion's open to everybody. Here's the only thing I'm going to ask you to think about. Two things. As we sit in the quiet here, after you take communion, we encourage you to come back to your seat. Just take three or four minutes and say, God, I really want to value you more. How can I do that? God, would you show me the hidden treasure that is on my property right now? Would you show me how valuable? I can't see it. I'm going to tell you right now, I cannot see the value. I don't wake up every morning and say, oh, God, you're so valuable, so valuable. I need divine intervention. I'm thinking that maybe you do too. Would you open my eyes? Show me your great work. Now, communion. What Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross is absolutely incredible. It's of immense worth. There's nothing more valuable than that in our lives, what Jesus Christ has done. Does that mean we come today and we think we're just like shaking with how? I mean, if somebody just gave us a billion dollars a day, we'd probably be shaking. Some of us might fall down on the ground. But do we feel about the same way? And what we need to do here in these moments is say, Jesus, you broke your body. You shed your blood for me. Great worth. Could you help me to understand the worth of that, the value of that in a brand new way right here in this room this morning? You know what the Bible says? Jesus says, this is my body. And this is, it's very personal. I don't have time to go into all the, you know, 
all the theology behind that, but it's a very personal and strong statement Jesus says. And so that's why, that's why when we get serious about communion, we say, God, show me the value of it. And you take and observe communion in a very serious way. Many people say they feel the presence of Jesus Christ walking amongst them right here in this room, walking amongst us like never before because Jesus Christ is in communion personally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for who you are. You are worthy to be praised and your value is off the charts. But Lord, you know that we are distracted by many things in life. And because of that, our world is constantly rocked. And we're tired of it. We're tired of our world being rocked. Father, open our eyes to see the value that we are on right now, on our own land that we own. There is a hidden treasure. Open our eyes to that treasure. That we might value you more. That we might value you most. That we might live lives of purpose and of peace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get. in Jesus, for what you did for us on that cross, incredible. That our sins might be forgiven. Would you just show us afresh and new right here this morning? Would you walk amongst us and help us to understand the great worth and how that connects to our own lives in these moments? I ask, Father, that you would bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. In your holy name, amen.